Well, uh, before we jump into Acts chapter 5, we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 5, verse 12 today. Um, I wanted to start out with a um, kind of a visual and a thought for you to, to uh, get around this uh, passage that we're going to look at and the message that we're going to look at today. In 1989, there was a skateboarder slash artist by the name of Shepard Ferry who made a stencil of a face that we're going to show you right here. Has anybody ever seen this before? Raise your hand if you've ever seen this in your life. Most of you have seen this. All right, this came from a skateboarding art student in 1989 named Shepard Ferry, who um, it started out as kind of a joke. He was, um, yeah, leave, leave the giant up here. It, um, it started out as a joke. He was an art student, and he was making this stencil, and he and his buddy were flipping through a newspaper, and he saw this picture of Andre the Giant. That's who that is. Um, some of you know him mostly from Princess Bride. Others of you were big into WWF when you were a kid, Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. And he was a wrestler, big, gigantic guy, 500-pound guy. He was seven foot four or something like that. This big giant man, all right? And so what he did is he's like, I'm just going to make this stencil and I'm going to start putting it places. And by adding this one word, the simple word at the bottom of it, obey, it gave this kind of like mysterious, curious vibe to it. And it was totally on the underground. It was like skater kids cruising around in the middle of the night, plastering these posters up on walls and in downtown areas and stickers on stop signs and all this. And pretty soon, people, lots of people that had nothing to do with this guy or his industry or his world started recognizing and seeing this particular um, piece of art. It went viral. It went global. And even though it began as a joke, it really started revealing some things about our society. All right, um, people philosophized about this. Like, what does this mean? You know, what is this all about? Is this, how is this culturally impacting the rest of us? Who are we obeying? What are we obeying? Why are we obeying? I'm not going to obey. I need to obey. Like, all these things started happening, right? Um, some people worried about it. What, what could this mean? It happened in our city now, you know, and now it's, it's spread to all these places. I heard it was on the Eiffel Tower in Paris, and oh, it's made it to the Great Wall of China. Like, all these things are happening. What is this? Um, some people just laughed at it, questioned it, championed it, attacked it. But for most people who thought about it, they simply asked, what is that? And what does it mean? But for a lot of people, I think what they, excuse me, what they really thought about this was whether they thought, oh, this is Big Brother, or this is some cult, or whatever it was, for most of them, they just said, well, who do I obey? What do I obey? And where does this obedience thing fit into my life? All right? And that question, the question of who do I obey, is the one that we're going to ask ourselves today as we study this passage in Acts. All right? Now, here's the thing about obedience. Obedience as a child is one thing. When you're little, most of the time, not everybody, but most people were raised in families, no matter what your family uh, dynamic was like, most of the time, little kids are raised up and they have to learn how to obey. Their parents, their grandparents, their school teachers, whatever it is. Right? They have this idea from the time you're small, okay, well, I obey, this is the authority structure, and when mom says I have to go to bed, then I have to go to bed, right? Sort of. 
right? And, and so there's this idea of obedience. It's kind of clear cut. You have these authority figures in your life. You have this responsibility. Um, but what about when we're grown? What about when we're adults? I think for a lot of times people think, okay, well, when I hit adulthood, now I no longer have to obey anybody. But you kind of do. Right? There are still authority structures in place. You're still part of a society. You still live in a world that requires some sort of obedience. And if not, there's going to be consequences that follow that. What about spiritual obedience? Have you ever thought about that? Spiritually, who do you obey? Who is the one that calls the spiritual shots in your life? The decisions that you make. Um, the things that you say and do and where you go and, and how you function as a spiritual being. Now, here in Acts, as we've seen all through the book of Acts, the time in history where the events of Acts took place was very unique. Right? It, we can recognize that in the first five chapters that we've seen so far. Some really unique things happened during this period of time. Radical things happened as God poured out his spirit upon his people. And the Spirit, the move of God's Spirit, sent shockwaves through the, the nation and, and through the region. And for some, it brought incredible joy. Think of all those people that had been healed or saved, right? For them, the Spirit of God moving was impacting them in a way that they're like, this is amazing. God is here. God is doing something. You look at those, those different um, healings that we saw and took a look at. You know, Peter and John going up to the temple that day. And this, this man who's over 40 years old, who spent his whole life paralyzed, can't walk, has always sat there trying to beg for money at the gate of the temple. And what happens? Peter and John come up and they heal him. And what did he do? He started running through the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. There was joy because the Spirit of God had moved. All right? But for others... And you guys saw this with Tim a couple weeks ago. It brought fear. Those who were friends of Ananias and Sapphira, remember this story? <laughs> Where they came in and had lied about what they had given and God strikes them dead. The Spirit of God moving brought fear into their lives. And for others, it brought anger and jealousy like the religious leaders that we're going to look at here today. But as Jesus said, the work of God would begin to spread throughout the world. First in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And nothing was going to stop the movement of God. But as we're going to see here today, when God's Spirit poured out, a spiritual shift happened. All right? Something was different. Legitimate spiritual authority had moved from the established Jewish leadership now to the followers of Jesus. A shift took place in all this. And we pick up here today in Acts 5, uh, starting in verse 12. And here's what it says. It says, <coughs> excuse me. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now that was just a little covered archway in the temple uh, the temple compound, all right? And there was this long area of all these colonnades and, and kind of a, a, a pergola kind of thing, but a really long one and big. And that's where they gathered, that's where they hung out, on the temple grounds, all right? It goes on and says, and none of the rest dared join them, meaning the, the number of the apostles, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, 
multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The church was gathering momentum. They didn't even know they were really a church yet. They were just the followers of Jesus. The Spirit had poured out on them. They were doing things as they were being led, and it was gathering momentum. And it's happening right in the middle of the temple courtyard, right in the same place that all the Jewish people had always come to worship. But for the first time ever in the history of the place, real miraculous things were taking place. Signs and wonders were validating the preaching of the gospel. Now, we don't know exactly how long this period lasted, Um, at least many days, probably weeks and months that this was taking place. And that that little passage from verse 12 to 16. But however long it lasted, word had gotten out. So even those outside of the city of Jerusalem, in the surrounding towns, they started hearing about it. And they're like, it's incredible. God is moving in an incredible way at the temple. If you've got somebody who's sick, you've got somebody who needs a healing, you've got somebody who you think has a demon in them, like get them to the temple. It's going to be incredible. You've got to get them there. And so that's what takes place. People start coming in and they are experiencing the work of God. I mean, notice what it says there. It says they were all healed. What an amazing time that would have been for those several months probably um, being a part of what God was doing there. And in these early years, God did some really exceptional things. Now, I believe that it was part of God's plan to help establish the church. This shift from the Jewish system and the Mosaic law and all of the sacrificial system, this was embedded in their culture. And to take that and shift that into this new thing was a big deal. And it took a lot to validate this thing, to break all those centuries of of tradition and culture and say, no, actually God's doing a new thing. He's fulfilled those things. Jesus came and fulfilled that system, but now he's got something new that he wants to do. And that was part of his plan. But I also want you to notice that from its inception, the church has been a place where people have come to be healed. And I think that's important for us to remember as Christians. Because sometimes we can get to a spot where we all start getting worked on by God and we all start getting kind of polished up and cleaned up and fixed up. And pretty soon, we're like a pretty good looking group of people. It's like we get along, we love each other, we're learning to forgive one another, we're being kind, we're ministering to each other, we're building each other up and we're like, this is great. Let's just close the doors and just hang out together. And let's not deal with the sick people that come through the doors. Let's not deal with those that are hurting and a mess and all that that can, that, right? But then you lose sight of what you're actually doing as a church. The church is a place for those that are hurting, for those that are sick, for those that may have demons <laughs> that need to be healed and transformed. That's what the church is supposed to be. That's what the church has always done and should always do and will always do when they're paying attention to what Jesus is doing. In their lives. Now, um, as I've shared before, I think it's sometimes a little frustrating when we read Acts and we don't seem to see the same quantity of things like physical healings as they did in, the, in that first century. 
However, I really believe that God knows what he's doing, and I trust that he knows what's going on, and I don't believe that God got weaker over time. Well, he had the power to heal people then, but now we've got some real big problems, so he can't. No, there's none of that. That's not what's going on. He's still totally aware of our needs. Um, As Tim pointed out a couple of weeks ago, if your life has been changed by Jesus, you have experienced a miracle, right? I love this quote from Warren Wearsby that says a very similar thing. Here's what he says. It'll be on the screen for you. It says, The greatest miracle of all is the transformation of a lost sinner, which is where we all start, into a child of God by the grace of God. That is the miracle. Listen to this. That's the miracle that meets the greatest need, lasts the longest, and costs the greatest price. The blood of God's Son. So we don't want to underestimate those miracles. It'd still be really cool to see some of these other miracles happen, right? But still, a great miracle has happened when a life is changed. And I do think that God still does physical miracles. We should ask for them when we need them. But what we see in Scripture, and we learn time and time again from Scripture, even when miracles take place, not everyone will be convinced to follow Jesus. And it was no different even when signs and wonders were happening every single day. Let's pick up here in verse 17. It says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, that's the entire Sanhedrin, all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. So miracles are taking place, left and right, in the temple compound, with these people. But instead of humbling themselves as the leaders of this temple and glorifying God with awe, instead of the high priest hearing about this and showing up and be like, give glory to God, this is amazing. Instead of that, the religious leaders just fell into jealousy. To jealousy, that's what it says here. Because they cherished the fact that people looked to them for spiritual direction. This was their job. This was their role. They had been looked up to as those who should be admired and and to be those that other people would want to pattern, pattern their spiritual lives after. They were the devout ones. They were the disciplined ones. They were respected. And the disciples of Jesus are undermining all of this. They were, as it says here, they were perplexed. They're like, what is going to come of all this? Where is this leading? What is going on here? Now, the root issue that I see here that was driving their jealousy is something that I think we're all in danger of. 
Now, most of the time, jealousy is one of those, those things in us that we don't really like to label. We like to give ourselves all kinds of other little excuses and, and, and justifications of why it's not really jealousy. I'm not really jealous about that. Well, it's just that this happened or that happened or whatever. But in this case, I think the root behind this jealousy was, was something that we are also in danger of, which is self-preservation. It was, it's kind of a form of self-centeredness. They just wanted to protect themselves. They didn't want their status quo to get messed up. They didn't want things to change. They were happy with the way things had been and the way things had always been. And so they wanted to keep that moving in that direction. They were so worried that they'd lose their position and their prestige that they couldn't even register the fact that God was doing miracles right in front of them. Notice this. They don't even talk about the fact that, well, how did those guys get out? What do you mean what happened? The guards are still standing there. What, where are they at? They, didn't, they weren't even ready to deal with any of that stuff. That's, that's, I don't want to hear about another miracle. Are you kidding? I just keep hearing all these reports of miracles. Don't tell me any of that stuff. I just want to know why when I called them in here, they're not here. That's all they could focus on. They couldn't even register God. And fear, this fear that, the fear of loss there, the fear, fear is one of the greatest enemies of our spiritual life and health. And the reason is, is because fear is one of our most powerful emotions. When you're afraid of something, and, and part of that is how God made us, right? The reason that parts of your body and your mind shut down when you're afraid is because you need all your energy to try to get away from that threat. But what happens is fear can, can actually um, set us up in such a way that we're not seeing things clearly the way we need to see them. And that's what happens a lot of times with fear. And prolonged fear breaks us down at a whole different level. And, and think about that with your own life. How many of us have seen our own spiritual growth stalled by a fear of losing something? You know what I mean by that? Think about that. Maybe it was when you very first heard the gospel the first time or the second time or the 25th time or whatever it took for you to finally respond to God. Right? For many people, they've heard the gospel. They have an idea of what Jesus is all about, but they're afraid of what they'd have to give up to follow after him. You see that all the time. If you tell them, hey, well, you're going to surrender your life to Jesus and he's going to change you, you're like, hold on, I don't know if I want to be changed. I've kind of been doing all right for these past few years of my life. Right? And so you hear it and there's this fear that's, that's slowing you down. It might not even be that. It may be after you've given your life to the Lord and, and you're trying to follow him, but there's something that God, you read in the word or you hear in a message, something that God impacts you with that you're like, I don't know about that. How about, how about the people that uh, for the first time decide, all right, instead of just kind of throwing a few dollars at God, I, I feel like I should start tithing. Well, that's scary. I, to give 10% of my money away, I'm having a hard time living on 100%. How am I going to come up with 90%? There's a fear involved there. Maybe that's what it is. You're afraid that you wouldn't have enough. Or maybe it's, it's something about the word. It's like, you know, I realize that my next step in growth is I've got to actually read what this Bible says. 
I need to find out what God says if I'm going to follow what God says. But if I start reading the Bible, the only time I really have is after work, and I'm tired usually after work, and that's when I watch TV. And if I can't watch all the episodes and keep up with that, like I'm going to lose out on the conversations I'm supposed to have at work. And now, ah, you know, there's a fear of, well, I have to give something up to get something else. And we live in an era of the world where we think we can do everything. That we don't have to give up anything and and miss out on anything. We can get it all. And we tell ourselves that we can multitask. I can watch this show while I do the dishes. I can answer the phone call. And I can talk to my kids and spend quality time with the family. And No, you can't. We can't multitask. We're humans. I'm sorry to break the news to you. Read the neurology. All right, You can't. You think you can, but you can't. But we don't want to miss out. We don't want to give anything up. But you need to understand... There's a real cost in following Jesus. There's a real cost. And there's nothing greater than him. So no matter what you lose, no matter what you give up, it is always going to pale in comparison to God. These leaders were concerned about losing what they once had, but they're in jeopardy of missing out on the greatest opportunity of their lives. Something with eternal implications. And every person who wants to follow Jesus has to face this. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, a very well-known verse, but listen closely to it today. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, an instrument of death, and follow me. For whoever would save his life, thinking they can hold on to this thing, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And so many people are like these leaders here. They're blind and perplexed. Like what is going to happen here of their spiritual condition? And others are aware, but they're just afraid of what they might lose. And they go back and forth and they're wrestling back and forth with this. Well, if I follow God, I'm going to have to give this up. And I don't want to give this up. And aren't I better off if I've got this instead of him? Uh, I don't know. Let's let's read on in verse 25. See what it says. It says, and someone came and told them. So here these guys are all gathered together. They're here in in their chambers ready to interrogate these apostles. They're not there. And someone comes in and tells them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple. And teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Stop right there. 
Now, like I said, the Sanhedrin just ignored the fact of how they got out of prison. You'd think they'd ask that question first. How'd you guys get out? And why didn't you run away? Didn't you know we were going to come after you? No, they're not going to deal with any of that. They just want this whole nightmare to go away. They felt their control slipping away. And the apostles here, they're not getting softer. They thought, okay, well, we'll put them in prison for the night. By tomorrow, they'll be like, uh, they'll, they'll be ready to talk to us. And we'll be the ones in power. And, and what, are they, what actually happens, though? Instead, they're becoming more bold. In fact, Peter says, oh, yeah, yeah, you think that we're trying to put this man's blood on you? It is on you. You are the ones who killed this man. And you are responsible for it. And don't think that we're thinking and it was somebody else. We're not going to blame Pilate or Rome. It was you guys. All right? We have witnessed the resurrected Jesus. You tried to kill him, but he came back. These miracles that you're seeing and that you're hearing about, they are an expression of the power of the Holy Spirit whom God has given those who obey him. We have the Spirit of God. Do you? That's what they're setting up here. That's how Peter is responding to these guys. And he's putting it back on them and saying, what does that tell you? You're supposed to be the spiritual leaders. You're supposed to be the ones that are forgiving sin and doing all this stuff. Well, guess what? That's not happening. So what are you going to do about it? The Sanhedrin had been entrusted with God's law. They had been given God's people, the priesthood, the temple, and the land. Yet here are some unknown, uneducated, untrained men ministering with the undeniable power of God. A clear line had been drawn, and now it was time for the religious leaders to make a decision. And I wish I could tell you, and they all fell on their knees and repented before God. And everyone lived happily ever after. Because that's how I like all stories to end. All right? But it's not. Look at verse 33. It says, but a Pharisee, I'm sorry, verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And then he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be a somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is, or this undertaking is of, man, uh, is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, uh, let's think about it a little bit from the perspective of these leaders. They, they, were, they were in a corner. They were trapped, right? They were enraged, but they were also terrified. They were super angry and wanted to kill these guys, but they were afraid of what might happen if they did. They were afraid of being killed by the crowds if they killed the apostles. 
They needed control or Rome would step in. We've talked a little bit in the past about how that worked with Rome allowing them to have some authority. But if they'd lost control, Rome would say, "Uh uh-uh, we're not having that. We're going to step in here. But they couldn't control these men. We've told them not to speak. They speak. We put them in prison. They break out of prison. What can we do? There was no clear path forward that they could discern. And from that place, Gamaliel here, who, by the way, would um, also be the teacher of Paul, if you recognize that name, that might be why, um, he steps up with this recommendation. Now, we know from history that at least one member of this council, um, Joseph of Arimathea, was a believer that Jesus was the, was the Messiah. And he was part of the Sanhedrin. That's what it tells us. Um, Joseph was, the reason we know this is Joseph was the one who um, gave Jesus the Airbnb tomb for the weekend. Remember? <laughs> He's like, yeah, come on, stay in my tomb, you know? Uh, and, and so he was a member of the council, it tells us. And Jesus, after three days, rises again and says, there you go, you got your, your tomb back. It's all good. I, you know, folded up the claws and left them there and it's all set. Everything's been taken care of. Right? So, so we know that at least one of them believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe Gamaliel was considering this as well. We don't know. But he was at least suspending judgment. And what did he advise here? Here's what he said to these guys. Essentially, he said, be very careful. Stuff like this has happened before. And it's kind of died out on its own. And if that's the case, then let's just back away from these guys. Let them, you know, sputter out however they're going to. But if not... If this is actually of God, his whole argument is based on this. He says, if this is God, you don't want to be found opposing God, right? Now, it's interesting that that's the way he does it. But I want you to recognize that the majority of these these religious leaders had a part of themselves that genuinely feared God. All right? We tend to categorize people that we don't know as either all bad or all good. This is one of the problems with our political system right now. And I'm not political. I'm not going to jump into that. But we tend to think that people we don't know are either all bad or they're all good. But nobody is all bad or all good. We're a complicated mess, we humans. Right? And there are some things that we've got all squared away and nice and pretty. And we've got other things that are a mess. And we've got some opinions that contradict our own opinions. That's who we are. Okay? And if you've grown up in the church, you probably have always, like me, viewed the Jewish leaders as the bad guys. Right? They're the bad guys and the rest of the church are the good guys. The ones that killed Jesus and were arrogant and prideful. And while much of that is true, I'm a bit sympathetic with these leaders because they're a product of the culture that they were raised in And much of what they'd done had been passed down for generations. Uh, They were blind to the reality of Jesus. Okay? That's not an excuse for them. It's just the way it is. If they had been 100% wicked, I don't think that the possibility of opposing God would have affected them at all. That argument would have had no power. But instead, what Gamaliel says is, I mean, ultimately, his entire argument is built on this. You might be against God. And what do they do? Whoa. Let's take a step back. Because what we want to do in our own power is we want to kill them right now. But if we're opposing God, oh, we don't want to cross that line. All right? They had mixed motives. But the problem is this. You can't be partly gods. You can't be partly gods. You can't let Jesus be the Lord of your spiritual life 
while you try to be the Lord of the rest of your life. Okay? It's not a shared leadership model. It's not this thing where you're like, yeah, I invited Jesus into my life, and now he and I are walking kind of shoulder to shoulder, and we're making decisions around here. You know, he and I, you know, we consult on this, and where we come to an agreement, then that's how we go forward. It's not the way it works. That's not Christian faith. People, some people think that that's what's going on, but Jesus didn't give us that option. You either try to hold on to your life, or you surrender it all to him. That's the decision that we all must make. And many people are stuck in indecision with this. Um, in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, uh, when Jesus is speaking actually to a church, so to a bunch of church people, here's what he says in Revelation three fifteen to 16. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you, meaning I wish, you were either cold or hot. So, because you're lukewarm, you're stuck in the middle, and neither hot nor cold, what's he say? I'll spit you out of my mouth. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. You think you're kind of doing some clever balancing act between God and not God, and your own way and your own life, and God's way and God's life, and Jesus is back here saying, who do you think you're fooling? Like, just pick already. Either be hot and pursue the things of God, or just be cold and go do your thing. Because this whole lukewarm deal that you're trying to do is not going to happen. It's not going to work, and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. I know that's heavy. That's Jesus. The council didn't want to oppose God, but they didn't want to lose control either. They were religious church people. And I'm afraid there are many religious people stuck in the same place that these men were, lukewarm and blind. Now, I will tell you this. Uh, Jesus goes on there in that passage in Revelation, and he, he says, there's hope for the lukewarm. He doesn't say, oh, you're lukewarm, so I'm done with you forever. What he actually says is, is he actually says, hey, repent, turn from your ways, and you can come back to me. You can come back to me and be in right relationship with me. All right, so there's hope for even the lukewarm. But unfortunately, that's not what we see with the Sanhedrin here. They relent from killing them, but they don't repent. What do they do? They just beat the apostles, tell them to shut up, and then let them go. That doesn't sound like repentance to me, right? And let's read the last two verses that we're going to see here today. Verses 41 and 42. It says, Then they, meaning the apostles, after they've been beaten here, and threatened, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I, I think that these verses mark a high point in the lives of the apostles. Um, if you remember back to when Jesus was arrested, when Jesus was arrested, these same apostles, they scattered, right? They were scared. They're like, we don't know what's going on here. Those big leaders, they're going to do some deadly things, and they did, and they scattered. But we see that after they witnessed the resurrected Jesus and after they were empowered with the Holy Spirit, they, they, were, they were given um, boldness. 
At the end of chapter 4, we saw them pray for boldness to continue to preach, and that's what they received. This is one of the big points of one of Tim's messages, right? That God blessed the boldness, blessed their boldness. And the apostles had come to a place of maturity that allowed them to see with absolute clarity the difference between the path that was obedience to Christ and every other path. So much so that they would rejoice in suffering even if it meant that the way of Jesus was going to be proclaimed. It was obedience that gave the apostles confidence and joy. That's how this comes back here. Disobedience gave the religious leaders fear and confusion. That was the difference going on here. And the apostles made an important distinction of how they would live. It says there in verse 29, We must obey God rather than men. And they chose to obey God. By obeying God, they experienced the ongoing empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's still how God works today. There are many ways that the Holy Spirit empowers us. Galatians 5 gives us a list of some of the results of the, of the Spirit at work in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So as we wrap this all up and think about it for ourselves, do you see these things in your life? Are they there? Is the power of the Holy Spirit evident in your life? And if it isn't, the first thing to check is your obedience. Are you obeying God in your life as best as you know how? Is there anything in your life that's at odds with God and God's word? Maybe it's an attitude towards someone. Maybe it's a place of unforgiveness in your heart. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's an ongoing sin. Is there disobedience that you know of? Jesus told the apostles, look, you've got to go. Be a witness to me of my resurrection and teach what I've taught. And if they were to stop that, they'd be disobedient to him. And that's what they say to these, these leaders. They're like, listen, you can decide what you think you want us to do and who we're supposed to obey, but I'm telling you who we're going to obey. Jesus told us to teach, we're going to keep teaching. He told us to proclaim his resurrection. We're going to proclaim his resurrection. He told us to heal and minister and love people. That's what we're going to do. No question about it. Disobedience might not always be an issue of salvation, but it's definitely an issue of abundant life. Sometimes we have to wrestle with things and struggle with them for a long time to become fully obedient. I personally spent many years of my life I think a lot like these religious leaders in the passage. I wanted the things of God, but I also wanted my own way and my own glory. And there were parts of my heart that were not totally surrendered to Jesus. And with some of those things, I'll tell you right now, I was blind to them. I was disobedient and I hadn't even seen it yet. And it wasn't until walking with the Lord for a long time that he began to reveal those things in my heart. And I started realizing, whoa, I think that I'm following God here, and I'm not. But God's good to help us be changed and transformed in that way. In some of the other things in my life, I was just flat-out rebellious. It wasn't being blind. It was being stubborn, willful, wanting my own way. Either way, my heart had to be dealt with. 
So here's, here's your question. Here's how we finish. Who do you really obey? Who is it that you really obey in your life? Who is calling the shots in your life? Is Jesus actually the Lord of your life? Or do you just say it, wear the t-shirt, put on the bumper sticker, show up to church? Are we like those religious leaders claiming to obey God but actually obeying their tradition, their culture, and their own desires? Sadly, guys, there's a lot of self-named Christians today that do that very thing. Or are we people that are truly surrendered to him? Last, last little thought here, and I'll be done. We have to choose to follow the new way of life that Jesus has set out for us. You might have heard the old statement, partial obedience is no obedience at all. Incomplete obedience doesn't cut it. We can try to play the game, but it won't give us the results that we need and desire. The Christian life is really one of surrender, and it's ongoing surrender. It's not just a one-time prayer that you say, take my life, Lord, and then I'm going to do the rest of that I'm going to do however I'm going to do it. It demands every part of who we are. It demands our time, our energy, our thoughts, our relationships. So our marriages, our friendships, our family, our careers, our money, our sexuality, our hobbies, our plans, our present, and our future. Everything. Everything. Jesus, in, in questioning people on this, in Luke 6.46, he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Because we're conflicted people. And he wants us to follow after him. And when we don't surrender our lives completely and totally and obey him. He, later in that Luke section, he, he describes it as, you're building your house on sand. You think you've got things together. You think you're building up this thing. But what I'm telling you is, your life, your whole life is being built on sand. And eventually, houses built on sand will collapse. When the hard things come along, it's going to knock you over. So, we don't want to wait for the collapse. What do we want to do? We want to get things right today. How? You repent and choose to obey. It's as simple as that. So today as we, as we finish here, I actually want to give a minute or two just for prayer. Because I think that all of us, if we're, being, um, we're responding to this message the way we need to, I think we all need to take an inventory of our hearts. And, and I want us to just take a, a minute or two to spend some time just in silent prayer um, and, and ask God to take a look at your heart. So where you're at right now, if you would, go ahead and close your eyes, bow your heads if you want to do that. And begin to ask God if you are truly obedient to him. And ask him to shed some light on your heart this morning. And I'm just going to give you a, a few, few seconds to do that alone right now.
And if God has brought something up in your heart and your mind today, you have a choice to make. You have a decision. You have the same decision that, that those Sadducees and Pharisees had. The same decision that the apostles had, which is, who are you going to obey? Are you going to choose to repent from those things right now? To turn those things over to the Lord and follow after him wholeheartedly with surrender? Or are you going to continue on the path of disobedience? And that decision is for you to make. And so right now, I just encourage you to take the time to pray and talk with the Lord about that very thing. And Father, I know that you are hearing these prayers this morning. I believe that your Holy Spirit has brought some of these areas of disobedience possibly in our hearts to our mind. You've brought it to the surface. And so Lord, today I pray that you would give my brothers and sisters in Christ here the strength to obey. And I don't know, there may be some here today that have never surrendered their lives to you. And maybe that's what they're coming to you with today. Maybe they've been afraid to truly committing themselves to you. And so, Lord, today I pray that you would draw them to yourself. And if that's you here today, simply pray and ask God to give you the courage to be all in. And all you've got to do, what the Bible tells us is that that he will forgive us of all our sins if we come to him, surrender our lives to him, and put our hope solely and totally in the power and person of Jesus. He did what we cannot do. And so today, if that's you, just fall before the Lord and say, Father, forgive me my sins. I'm going to trust Jesus for salvation and receive the salvation that he has for you today. And what we've learned in Acts is that the Holy Spirit will empower you and transform your life. And he wants to do that here today. For those of you who have been walking with the Lord, maybe you've been on the fence, you've gone back and forth, maybe you're in a spot where you're kind of in a slump spiritually, and today is a day that you just need to get things squared back away. Maybe there's some places where you've wandered away from the Lord. He's calling you to repent. He's calling you to come back. He's calling you to obey. It's not a power trip that Jesus calls us to obey him. It's because his path is the path to life. And he wants to see abundant life in you. He wants you to be full of his spirit, of that joy and that peace and that patience and that goodness and the gentleness and the self-control, all those things and so much more. So follow after him. Choose his path and allow him to heal you and put you in the right place. Father God, we're thankful today for your grace and for your mercy in our lives. We thank you that you are patient with us even when we're disobedient children. We're grateful that you have mercy upon us, that you forgive us, and that you're always so good to call us back to you. 
Allow us to be right with you today. And I pray that all that have heard your word today would walk out of this place transformed and wholeheartedly following after you. That we would be the obedient people you're calling us to. And I pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.